understanding for ourselves and i think this is also a civil society failure of understanding that actually power lies inherent in us it's the responsibility and the rights and the duties and the power to actually change and transform society from within and outside greetings good people i'm kumi naidu and you're listening to power people and planet a series of candid conversations with activists and community leaders from around the world aiming to tackle the biggest questions of our time what's race and inequality got to do with climate change is our current economic and political system even capable of restoring nature or tackling inequality and how do we start to rebuild trust even a new social contract between citizens and people in power today we are speaking with the indian green activist scholar and co-founder of the kafavriksh environmental action group ashish kotari ashish and i know each other from the, our greenpeace days when he served as the chair of the board of greenpeace india and also on the board of greenpeace international but he's also one of the most respected environmental campaigners working in india today and i would go so far as saying one of the most respected environmental campaigners and social justice campaigners globally with over 40 years experience of building successful social movements around green issues ashish it's a great honor and pleasure to have you i i i before I dive into it i just want to say that you know the work that you've been doing over the last year in particular has been inspirational to people like me and lots of other folks around the world in terms of trying to bring together this global tapestry of alternatives can you just say very briefly what the vision behind that is and why that is so important in the current moment of history that we find ourselves in you know come in the first uh, 20 30 years of the work i was doing there was and continues to be a lot of firefighting you know protesting against this protesting against that and as the world goes goes uh, madder and madder in the wrong direction we obviously need to continue resisting and protesting that's a very important part of life but then i was also feeling increasingly dissatisfied with a predominant focus on no say no to this no to that etc and uh, and and as we were going around the country and other parts of the world also and linking up with other resistance movements we were also seeing that people are coming up with their own solutions people are actually coming up with their own solutions and maybe i'll talk about them later There isn't nearly enough focus from groups like ours uh, or from academics or from urban activists on those alternatives alternatives to the currently dominant to, to what we are fighting against right uh, and so the search for understanding them better maybe helping to document them supporting them because you know one of the things we also realized was that it's not like you know you look at a wonderful agro ecological initiative by say small scale women farmers in south india fantastic they've achieved food sovereignty and security and all of that and somebody says oh let's replicate that here or let's upscale that you know and for some reason or the other we many of us were kind of uncomfortable with that we thought that's like more of a corporate uh, way of looking at things uh, but what would be important is to learn the lessons from what those women are doing the values the ethics the principles the processes how they overcame hurdles etc and apply those in our own context and and use our own sense and on our own values also to add to them and that then is and then link them up so creating scale would be through that kind of horizontal networking and creating of those sorts of creation of those sorts of uh, non hierarchical networks and that's what the idea for the global tapestry of alternatives is that we have fantastic forums which are really strong on resistance but maybe not so much on what are those other worlds that are possible 
and how are they actually already happening in many parts of the world. So the GTA was created. First, we did in India, Vikalp Sangam, which means the alternative confluence started in 2014 with the same idea of bringing, creating a platform on which a lot of these people, organization movements could actually work together, learn from each other, create more of a critical mass. And then in 2019, we started uh, the global tapestry with a similar uh, perspective. So that's the idea. Ashish, I'm talking to you today uh, from uh, Durban, South Africa, which is my hometown. And um, in two of the nine provinces in South Africa, we, we got virtual anarchy right now as a result of industrial scale looting and uh, p- people losing faith in government and, and a whole range of complicated factors. Um, but can you just uh, inspire me? <laughs> I need some inspiration today and, and, and folks that are listening. If you were to just pick up one or two or three sort of alternatives that you've seen around the world, things that are simple but impactful, can you just pick up on one or two just to give us the flavor of some of the alternatives you're seeing in your work? Sure. Well, most of my experience has been from India. So let me start with uh, one or two from India uh, and then maybe one or two from outside. And uh, and maybe as an aside, which is uh, which is important here is... is uh, the term anarchy, and I know you are using it in the form of uh, disorder and, and chaos yes, and mayhem, yes, yes, yes. but as you very well know, probably better than me, anarchy as political ideology is actually, uh, you know, very, it should be given much more respect. Uh, and, and examples I'm going to give you probably kind of uh, hint at the possibilities of a, of a genuine just uh, anarchy uh, or a situation where there isn't so much dependence on the state, on the nation state. And I think one of the problems, I don't understand the South African situation so well, of course, obviously, but we are seeing somewhat similar things happening in many parts of the world, even in some parts of India. And I think one of the reasons for that is that we have given way too much importance in our lives to the government, to the nation state, and of course, increasingly to the private corporation. Let's leave that for the moment. But just this whole thing of saying that the government will do this thing for us. And of course, in most cases, the government doesn't. It either does not want to or it cannot uh, reach everybody's needs and and aspirations and so on. Mostly it doesn't even want to because it's just trying to hold on to its own power and its own profits and so on. Um, And so and when the government fails to do it, then there is, of course, dissatisfaction, which can be very muted. Most parts of India are like that. Or it can be extremely violent, as probably what you're seeing right now. And um, so, uh, to my mind, that's that's a failure of, of kind of understanding for ourselves. And I think this is also a civil society failure of understanding that actually power lies inherent in us. This is something that Gandhi tried to say quite a lot. It's the responsibility and the rights and the duties and the power to actually change and transform society from within and outside. Now, let me give you two or three examples of that to show what's possible. So in, in central India, uh, about 30 years back, uh, there was a village called Mendhalekha, which was involved in a, a resistance movement against two mega hydroelectricity projects, which would have displaced some 300 indigenous villages and lots of forests. So they stopped the projects. But in the process, the village also started asking itself, how do we govern ourselves in a way that is not just able to resist this imposition from outside, but is also just internally, where everybody has a voice, where we are protecting the forest, where even nature has a voice, right? And uh, bringing back some of their own indigenous traditions to actually be able to uh, back that up in terms of their own knowledge, their own wisdom, their own uh, cosmologies and worldviews. 
uh, and maybe also picking up some from outside. And they came up with this slogan, this is 30 years back, that even as we elect the government in New Delhi and Mumbai, in our village, we are the government. Nobody else will take decisions for us. It will be through the village assembly and as far as possible, we will take it by consensus. Um, and they've actually tried, they have implemented that very successfully. Now, learning from that, a number of others, there's another federation of 90 villages in, in a close by area that is also kind of trying to move towards this self-rule. And if you look at many movements in the world, indigenous people's movement for self-determination, Mexico, or the Kurdish Rojava women's movement in the middle of the most war-torn part of the world, you know, Iran, Iraq, Syria, uh, Turkey, border area. Uh, they're all arguing for this form of actual democracy or what we're calling radical democracy, that we will be the ones who take uh, power in our hands because we have it inherent, but that we will use that power with responsibility to make sure we're not snatching away somebody else's autonomy and freedom. And so we have examples of this kind. We have other examples where people, the same women I was talking about, I was thinking of an actual example from South India of 5,000 uh, Dalit women farmers, and, and for those of those who know the Indian caste system, you would know that Dalits are the most oppressed section of India's uh, of Hindu society, and there's 200 million of them. It's not a small number. Uh, they were considered untouchables, outcasts, all of that, right? So they're women, and it's a very patriarchal society, and they're very small farmers. So if you look at it from a caste, gender, and class perspective, they're the most marginalized section. In the last 30 years, they've actually moved to take full control over everything to do with food. Their traditional seeds, the land, the water, the knowledge, everything, and claim food sovereignty from moving from a situation of hunger and malnutrition to today being in full control of uh, food, feeding their own families, selling it to the market, all of that, and what, what they call Anna Swaraj. Uh, I'll come back to the notion of Swaraj uh, later, but essentially it's the same thing of radical democracy. But here they're saying, uh, radical democracy over our means of production. Now you could extend that to other economic means of production. And so there's fantastic examples of this kind all over the world, which provide us the inspiration that even we're in, when we're in the middle of the worst situations, and India is also going through one of its worst situations right now, possibly as bad as even worse than the uh, political emergency that uh, Mrs. Indira Gandhi had imposed in the 1970s. Uh, today, I think the the autocracy or the authoritarianism with which this government is acting, coupled with the COVID pandemic, the collapse of the public health system, etc., we are in a very bad situation. And this is when these sorts of examples, these signs of hope become very important. Because people know that they can move out of this system and create something very different. Yeah, no, I, I, I thank you so much for sharing that. You, I don't really remember there was a time that the World Bank uh, used to talk about the TINA principle in the 90s. It's that stood for there is no alternative, right? And uh, it was Margaret Thatcher, I think, who made that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> famous. Yeah, and yeah, in uh, South Africa, we jokingly say, especially in the part of the country I come, there's a very popular name called Temba, T H E M B A, which means hope, uh, right? And so, if you spell Temba out, it's there must be an alternative. Okay. So thank you for for sharing sharing those, and and thank you also for for drawing out the use of the word anarchy. I used it very loosely, uh, yeah, to refer to the uh, uh, the mass scale looting that's happening and the anti social violence and so on. But I should tell you that one of the people that I'm talking to also is a guy called Khan Ross, 
And Khan Ross used to be a, a British diplomat uh, during the Iraq war. And he gave evidence against Tony Blair and Gordon Brown to say that they lied about the Iraq war uh, in the run-up to it. And he's now no longer a diplomat. And he wrote a book called An Accidental Anarchist. And uh, talking to him was fascinating because he was very inspired by the example of the Kurdish women and, and how they've said, we're not going to give any power above us if we can exercise that power ourselves. And in a way, when I was listening to him, I thought, you know, a kind of the sort of soft anarchism that he was talking about is sort of another way you could say it is democracy taken seriously. So that's the way as he was talking that I understood. So thank you very much for, for drawing that out. Hey, one of my favorite pastimes is to look at the origins of words because we tend to use words in a very distorted way, right? Um, so democracy itself, uh, people think of it as elections. But the word democracy is democracy, which means power of the people, right? It's not power of those we elect and definitely not power of, uh, of private corporations and so on. So uh, I think going back to origins of words is always very, uh, very, very useful. Absolutely. Um, actually, that's a good point for me to uh, ask this question. In your own life, you embody the fusion between what used to be thought of as quite distinct fields in a way, academia and activism, right? Uh, tell me a little about your story and how that came to be and how you have managed to translate both these worlds, because you are respected as an intellectual, as a public intellectual, as well as an activist. So can you just reflect on that challenge and how you've managed straddling those two worlds? No, I think what happened was that, in, like I said, we started our activism in school, right? And so even when I was in college uh, doing my bachelor's and then my master's in, in sociology, I think I was spending more time with cultivation doing the environmental activism uh, in those days uh, as a young person. And while, of course, also studying, because to me, it, it was important that uh, since I was doing sociology, it was helping me to understand society uh, a bit better, though I never liked academics, but I realized that there was some importance in being able to understand uh, you know, basic Indian society, the caste system, gender, etc., etc. And in those early years, we actually, through Kalpavik, did some uh, investigations. We never called them research, but we did some investigations into uh, the impact of uh, coal-fired power station on villages in near Delhi. Uh, 1983, we did an investigation into the uh, proposed projects in the Narmada Valley in Central India and brought out quite a detailed report, which was published in you know, uh, The Ecologist and so on. Um, and it was, I think, because of that, where we were doing things not from an academic perspective, but we were trying to put rigor into it. We, we were not cutting ends. We were not, uh, and I'm sure if you if I go back to them, I might say, oh gosh, we got this wrong or we got that wrong. But for that point in time, it was with the with the best uh, of, our avail- uh, of our abilities and with honesty, trying to report on what we're seeing. Truth-based activism in a way. Exactly, yeah. And then, and then bringing them out, you know, so producing reports or booklets or whatever and putting it out in the, and many of us, some of us wrote a lot in the media also. But I think what happened was that because of that, Kalpavriksh got a bit of credibility as a as a credible research in organization also. Uh, I mean, it was already an activist one, but also as a research organization. And that's where, um, in that sense, and we kind of continued that combination. 
that even when we were doing much more detailed case studies, uh, not just sort of short stories, but more detailed case studies, we did many of them in the last few years, we were orienting them to, first of all, how were they relevant and reflecting the voices from the ground? And then how would they be relevant for those voices on the ground? So that it just not, it's not meant for a academic journal and getting, you know, uh, brownie points and whatever, but uh, actually something that's socially meaningful, right? So it's, uh, I always found it relatively simple to kind of bridge this thing. Now we find that sometimes what happens with that is that really hardcore activists and really hardcore academics will be critical of us because, you know, if you want to do hardcore academics, maybe I don't write so much in peer-reviewed journals. I write a lot more in popular uh, places and people will say, oh, but X, Y, Z. But then a number of the books that I've done with colleagues uh, have also got a lot of reviews and mostly appreciative reviews. So Because again, there we put in a lot of work, like the book that Asim Shivastav and I did called Churning the Earth in uh, 2012, which was looking at the uh, the impacts of globalization in India. We actually did, we did three years of work going into data, digging out lots of files and and, and doing critical analysis based on that. And maybe there's a little bit of uh, legacy here from uh, people like uh, my father. One doesn't normally tend to acknowledge one's family, but uh, my, my father was a political scientist, but also always an activist. And uh, I suspect that some of that atmosphere also got onto my heart and head uh, trying to combine combine these two things so so i'm sure those influences along with the influences from the activists on the ground you know, the, the the communities that that combined into making this possible so one thing we have in common common ashish is both our dads helped us in our activism journey the thing that we don't have in common is how early you embrace environmental justice as central to overall justice uh, that sadly was something in the context of the anti-apartheid struggle uh, was not that easy to do because like what people used to say at that time was like environmentalism was what rich people and white people did. You know, that's how it was like kind of presented. Uh, but staying with Kalpravish, you know, the, the, for all of what you've talked about, how important was for the impact that your work has had, uh, how much was it dependent on the fact that the way you set up this uh, organization in 79 was decidedly a non-hierarchical organization. Can you tell us what what does that mean and how does it work in practice and why that was you know, a critical part of your success story? Yeah, I think right from the beginning, um, you know, possibly because we started off as a bunch of uh, peers of, of, of friends in school and college, maybe one or two senior people. Um, we always thought of each other as equal, right? There were, it wasn't like some one person was was the leader and the others were, were following. And so when we formed Kalpavrich, we kind of decided explicitly that we will make that part of our norms, that everybody will be part of decision-making. All members will be part of decision-making. Who is a member, who is not a member? Those have been parts of discussions ever since then for the last 40 years. But if one is a member, you're entitled to all the decisions in the organization. There's nobody who... Uh, nobody who's a president, nobody who's secretary, whatever, uh, other than for formality, because you need it for the administration, for the government. But other than that, there's no, no some single person can take decisions for others. Everybody's involved. So this kind of a, cons- and, and also by consensus, so kind of similar to that village that I spoke about earlier. What I think that has meant is, so if you look at the pros and the cons, on the side of the cons, it means sometimes decisions can take much longer than 
I mean, if I had the power to decide, I could take it in a minute, but it might take days. Even when you have a consensus base, you know, kind of thing. Somebody is saying no, then you still keep discussing it. Uh, on the pro side, because everybody is involved, or most people are involved, the stake in the decision is that much higher. And people's abilities to take responsibility also grows much more than if somebody else was taking the decisions for them. And in that sense, this again relates to what I was saying earlier. You know, see, democracy is not just about my claiming the right to take decisions. It's also about my having the ability and the maturity to take what could be the right or the just decisions. You know? And therefore, for instance, even saying, uh, I, I won't take decisions by majority. You know, so the voting system or majority, minority, because we know that often, uh, sometimes it can go horribly wrong. So uh, building that kind of, uh, I would say, sort of maturity, capacity, etc., is what happens when you create a system like this. And despite all the problems with it, I think eventually it kind of pays off in terms of the fact that there's not just one, two, but at least 10, 15, 20 who are capable of taking full responsibility for the organization and just going ahead with things. Not just that, but we've also been very, very, uh, uh, we've tried to be very proactive in creating capacities for things like uh, writing. So there's at least a dozen people in, in Kalpurich out of the 25, 30 members, there's at least a dozen who write regularly in the press, right? So it's not only Ashish Kothari or one or two other names who actually come, there's a number of them. And, in, and that also creates, I think, you know, a, a much more of a horizontality. And also in the outside world, I think a greater credibility than if one were to see only one name. One last thing, and I'll end there, is that I think another very important principle in this is about um, access to financial resources. So, you know, payment, honorarium. We don't call it compensation, we call it honorarium. Uh, and the we've kept a, a ratio, I think we had a ratio of one is to three, that is the highest pay will not be more than three times the lowest. Now it's one is to two, which is crazy because it's not easy to manage it, but we we are we are trying and so far we're succeeding and which means that there is a horizontality even so i'm in it for 42 years i actually get a bit of less pay than somebody who's joined five years back and my pay is very uh, just a bit more than somebody who's actually just joining now uh, others looking at us say this is madness because you know you as 42 years old you, uh, somebody who's been in it for 42 years you should be getting significantly more you deserve it but our point has always been that um, the worth of a person is not uh, what should i say the pay salary the salary grade etc should not be what reflects the worth of a person if every person is worthwhile in the organization uh, i think is a model that is well worth trying out uh can i ask you a, a bit of a naughty question uh, maybe it's not a naughty question it's a question that needs to be asked and that is having had uh, interactions like myself for part of your activism with the international ngo environment would you recommend that approach for international NGOs to also be seriously looking at at this moment? Absolutely. And uh, since you know that I'm on the Greenpeace board, this has been one of my uh, bugbears with Greenpeace uh, here. I mean, internationally, I don't know, but certainly India, is that uh, we need to think of much flatter decision-making processes and much flatter uh, pay scales and, and rates of honorarium and so on. Yeah, no, and, and, and can I just say that you know, today you get a word that sounds like y'all have been living in practice since y'all started, which is we talk about leaderful movements, leaderful organizations. And it's a no-brainer, especially when we're facing repression in many societies. If we centralize sort of leadership around 
one or a few people, we are actually putting our organizations at risk in terms of sustainability, uh, robustness, and so on. So there's so many reasons uh, for that. But let me just pick up on the radical ecological democracy idea that that you know that you've been pushing in your work. And can you just sort of say how that system works or how it or what can we do to make it come about? You know, uh, if you can just unpack that a bit. Sure. So, uh, you know, I think, uh, and maybe here I can explain the word Swaraj a bit because it's a very important concept across in South Asia, uh, is that Swaraj is a notion, uh, I won't go into all the complexity, but basically, I mean, it got well-known because Gandhi used it in the independence struggle. And so it's usually associated with India's independence from British colonial rule, but that's actually a very small component to it. Uh, right from ancient Indian times and then how Gandhi used it, it actually means autonomy and freedom, but with the responsibility for everybody else's autonomy and freedom. This is very, very important. You know, it's not like the American notion of autonomy and freedom where I will go and bomb Iraq or Iran if they don't give me patrol or whatever. You know, that, you know I, American uh, way of life uh, it means, you know, run roughshod all over the world. It would mean that as an individual, as a community, as a country, as a collective in whatever form, uh, we will want to live, we will live the life we want to live. But if that means undercutting somebody else's happiness and freedom and autonomy, then that's not acceptable. That's not Swaraj. And that's what needs to be built into democracy also. And uh, in a sense, Swaraj could encompass all of that. But just to make it explicit, one puts the word radical and ecological also in front of democracy. But if you look at Cosmovision's worldviews in many other parts of the world, from your own region, you know, Ubuntu and all of its sort of associates, Buen Vive, Samakkausay, Senti Pensar, etc., from South America, Kyosai from Japan. There's so many different ones uh, in different parts of the world, especially from the indigenous and traditional peoples, but even from the new industrialized world, some of the new concepts like, I don't know, eco-feminism and, and, and degrowth and all of that. And uh, in that sense, there's sort of a common thread. They're very different, but there's a common thread of this, this notion of being radical as in going to our roots, again, importantly, the word radical gets distorted to mean killing each other, <laughs> but it's really about going to one's roots, uh, ecological and democracy in the sense of Swaraj, um, is that it's those common notions of solidarity, of working with each other, of the commons, of the collective, of uh, respecting diversity, uh, of freedom and autonomy, of responsibility along with the rights of nature, and so on. It is uh, so radical ecological democracy in that sense encompasses all of that. And if I might just quickly draw a flower for you, and we, we, we actually have a, a visual image of that, which is a flower with five petals. We call it the flower of transformation. So the five petals are politics, economics, society, culture, and ecology, environment, right? And the first one, politics, is what I've already spoken about, that it's Faraj, it's claiming power where we are. But it also then extends to questioning the nation-state and nation-state boundaries. I mean, you folks in Africa have suffered how nation-state boundaries have been created through colonial, uh, you know, whatever, diktat, say in South Asia and so many parts of the world, right? And they cut into or cut across uh, ecological contiguity, cultural contiguity, etc. They created wars, and certainly in South Asia, that's what we've seen. Um, so this radical politics, the first sphere, first petal, would actually then also mean redefining political boundaries from an ecological and cultural perspective and much else. And I'm, I'm going very briefly here. 
The second petal is the economic democracy part, which is like I said, the women farmers saying we should have control over our means of production. Industrial workers can say that, craftspeople can say that, wherever you are, as a worker, as a producer, to be in control. But even as a consumer, to be in control of what one is consuming. I don't know what is there in the products that I'm buying from the market these days. There's a small fine print, which I don't understand at all. So even as somebody who's consumer, I need to have control over my life. So economic democracy and bringing the economics of caring and sharing back into our lives, you know, the, the not, not just money and finance. The third is social justice. And this is very important because you can have a, a localized political and economic democracy, which remains very oppressive to women or to certain castes in India or to or racism or whatever. So the struggles for social justice and equality are the third crucial component here. The fourth one is culture and knowledge. And, you know, if you've seen the kind of uh, cultural uh, homogenization that colonization has caused, and even now in our education systems, how we, like in India, we have 780 languages, but we teach in our schools in only about 20 languages. So we're sort of displacing enormous uh, cultural diversity of various kinds uh, and also knowledge diversity. Why do we think that only modern science and technology is the knowledge to have? So many traditional forms of knowledge, which are also equally important. So that's the fourth sphere of this uh, radical ecological democracy. And the fifth one is ecological resilience, ecological wisdom, obviously sustaining the earth, because without that, earth is not going to sustain us. And so it's this, you know, it kind of en- radical ecological democracy or eco-swaraj kind of encompasses these five spheres of transformation. And of course, they're interlocked. And, and at the core of that, if I just might take a half a minute more, at the core of that flower of transformation is value, ethics. So like I spoke about earlier, the ethics of uh, responsibility, the ethics of interdependence, the ethics of diversity, of autonomy, freedom, of uh, uh, reciprocity, of uh, rights of not just human beings, but the rest of nature, of respect, that is what is the common thread in the sort of amazing alternative movements that we're seeing in different parts of the world, I think. Um, and, And that's what we need to. They're all values that are very different from what the dominant system tells us. When I'm in school and I'm told, you have to come first. It doesn't matter what happens to the rest of your classmates. It's a completely different value system from being told that, no, all of you need to go up, move up together. And if even one person is struggling, you wait until that person is caught up. And again, I know that in many African societies, it exactly is like this. Exactly. I mean, that's what I got socialized in as well. Um, I mean, I think the two things stand out most for me is how, in fact, ancient wisdoms and indigenous knowledge um, was so heavily eroded by colonialism. But on the other hand, it also is inspirational in a way that it never got completely extinguished. That in the current moment, we are almost seeing a resurgence of ancient wisdom. And as we get closer to the climate cliff and face the reality of runaway, irreversible, catastrophic climate change, I think there's more willingness now to look at what colonialism wiped out. I mean, interestingly, even if you look at some of the ancient wisdoms with regard to plant medicine from the Amazon, for example, and different parts of Africa, I mean, you're seeing CEOs of the biggest company in the U.S. rushing off to the Amazon for ayahuasca ceremonies and and other sort of uh, healing ceremonies and so on. So I'm wanting to just ask you about yourself personally now and, and, and how you're coping with, um, you know, we are seeing that there's a lot of government crackdowns 
around the world and India as well is becoming a increasingly hostile place for activists, NGOs, and campaigners. And and it's not as if it's just happened now. It's been happening for some time, as you know better than me. But how has this affected you personally, and how can social movements, civil society, and campaigners respond? Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, it's been happening, as you say, for quite some time now. But the last four, five, six years, especially in India, have been, uh, in that sense, much worse because the space... Spaces for civil society have shrunk. The spaces for democratic uh, dissent and dis- and, and uh, decision making, participation, etc., have shrunk considerably under this particular regime. I have not personally been attacked or uh, targeted, though I've been named in one or two intelligence bureau reports, uh, partly because of the connections with Greenpeace. As we know, Greenpeace has been attacked, and as a board member, of course, then. People like me and are, are always on the radar. But uh, many, many colleagues have been, and in that sense, we've been having to struggle every once in a while to, to see justice uh, being met. Now, uh, the most recent examples being the four or five young people who were targeted for climate activism, young people who were targeted for climate activism from uh, uh, two or three organizations in India. And all charged with uh, terrorism, etc. I said, all nonsense, completely not complete nonsense. But when that happened, we had to obviously, you know, struggle and make sure that there was enough of a national response to uh, to make sure that they were not being harassed in jail and and, and or otherwise. So this uh, this kind of, I mean, it makes it absolutely important to to have the both the national and the global networks that could react and respond immediately, so that nobody is alone. People have the legal backups, people have the financial backups, etc. Whatever is needed to make sure that they get a proper hearing. And even then, often, as we know, it doesn't work. I mean, there have been people in jail for years now with absolutely no evidence for, you know, you know we know that certainly in India and other parts of the world. But yeah, so I, I, I think uh, uh, in that sense, we're in many parts of the world going through very difficult times. Certainly in India, we are. But I feel that, that civil society is also strong and that we will see through these phases. But what I think is very important is that, again, the combination of the resistance with all the networking and everything that's needed with the keeping up of hope and the stories of hope so that we know that once we have overcome this challenge, we have something better to go to. That's been one of our main roles. So so let me ask you a reflection question, right? I, when I reflect on, you know, what I've been involved in over the years, and, and I think about an error that maybe I made, and, and just want to get your sense of how it sits with you. Uh, while the repressive state apparatus, as Althusa and others called it in the 70s, uh, you know, is very powerful, by which we mean framework, you know, for policing, um, formal laws, and all of that, right? And... Uh, which we've talked about, but I have come to realize that actually that the more insidious and more powerful form of control is more the ideological state apparatus, in the, by which I mean the framework for education, religion, social norms and customs, and critically important, the framework for media and communications. Um, so when you look at India, how big a problem is the ideological state apparatus in terms of holding uh, holding us back from winning over um, 
sufficient numbers of citizens to put pressure on government and business to make the changes that um, India and the world needs. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I think we do tend to, civil society does tend to focus much more on the, the obvious, the institutional, the physical parts of the state apparatus, you know, like you said, the police and so on, uh, but not nearly so much on the on the on the messaging on the on the worldviews on the ideological like the cultural uh, ways in which they hold hegemony uh, if i might go back to uh, 150 or 200 years back when uh, uh, i think i don't know 100 150 years back when uh, when lord macaulay uh, put the education system into place in india he said in famously or infamously that if you want to continue colonizing a people it's not through the police and the military it's through colonizing their minds. And what better way than to actually have an education system through media, and including now the so-called social media, which there's two elements to this which are important. For the last 60, 70 years, the brainwashing that's been happening is about development. What is development? What is progress? What does it mean for human beings to move ahead, right? So, and everybody or most people have got onto this, the materialist, the industrialist, the American way of life kind of thing. And that's very hard to dislodge from people's minds. The most intelligent, the most sensitive people would still say, no, but this is development and we have to do it. And if a few people have to pay the cost, well, it's okay. Uh, but the second one, which is equally or even more dangerous right now, is the cultural uh, hegemony part of it, where so many people in India have kind of got brainwashed into thinking that this religious minority is always evil, is always bad, is, is violent, X, Y, Z, you know, these sorts of things. So this whole politics of religious hatred, for instance, or ethnic hatred, is something that also this uh, uh, ideological cultural state apparatus has, has dinned into us in many, many different ways. And as I said, social media has in fact become a very powerful tool. Even as it's a powerful tool for civil society, it's actually equally even more so for those in power to actually play this kind of mischief. Just to give you a very quick small example, uh, we're just hopefully starting a campaign on uh, uh, on Ladakh. Ladakh is uh, adjacent to Tibet. And um, the team is now promoting a Mahakumbh, which is one of the it's the biggest Hindu festival, which has normally been happening in, in uh, on the Ganga. Now they're promoting for the Indus. The Indus is also part of Hindu mythology as Sindhu, etc., etc. And they're promoting it there. And uh, in a way, it's kind of, uh, they're trying to do that with uh, Lakshadweep islands, which are predominantly Muslim. They're trying to push all kinds of Hindu ideas there. So it's really about um, uh, an apparatus which is, and this is, not, uh, this is not happening in intellectual ways. This is happening through the rewriting of history, uh, but sort of reaching people's hearts and emotions. And this is something where I think civil society has not been very good. And, and I think that's where we need to get much, much, much better if we want to uh, really create the mass movements for, uh, for change. I think climate, pollution, toxics, these are things which could definitely become ways by which we reach people's hearts. And it's happening to some extent, but we need to do much, much more. I fully agree with that, and I'll just tell you that the architect of apartheid, uh, uh, Enric Verfoot, his most powerful statement was actually about education, when he said, blacks should never be shown the greener pastures of education. They should know that the station in life is to be ewers of water and carriers of wood. And they went on to say, if we give them education, then we won't have our cheap labor. 
So, you know, it's, it's, it's a very colonial education did bring, which I think is the worst disease that humanity faces today. Uh, and that is a disease we could call affluenza, where we have been led to believe that a good, meaningful, decent life comes from more and more and more material acquisitions. But uh, talking about the other major disease that we are dealing with, which is COVID-19 or the pandemic, um, how has the pandemic changed the conversation around society, government and citizens in India? Do you get a sense that people are more motivated to push for change or less in the current moment? And what is your sense of the sort of future direction of India post-COVID? I think it's uh, starkly different between the government and, and the people. So middle of 2020 onwards, Prime Minister has been talking about self-reliance. He's suddenly sort of woken up and said, COVID has made me realize that India needs to be, every village needs to be self-reliant, every district needs to be self-reliant, every state and the country as a whole needs to be self-reliant. And so three budgetary packages that have been uh, announced since then have all been named Atmanirbhar Bharat, which means self-reliant India. If you actually dig into those uh, budgets, there are very little to do with self-reliance at the community and local level. They're all about uh, making sure that manufacturing happens in India, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, so, for instance, 60 coal mining blocks have been auctioned during the same period under the same self-reliant India thing, which is make India self-reliant power. In what form, at what cost, at whose cost, those questions are being asked. Now, um, so, unfortunately, that, that part of, the, of society still is like that. But I think there's an increasing number of people on the ground, ordinary people, right, who are at least doubting the system. And asking or responsive to questions that we're asking. And when we show examples of how communities have been resilient in this time, because they had relative levels of uh, local decision making or localization of the economy or local uh, producer consumer uh, exchanges, uh, their own community health systems, etc. And we've put together about 60 stories of this from different parts of the world in a series called The Extraordinary Work of ordinary people beyond pandemics and lockdowns. When this happens, then people kind of do sit up and say, okay, looks like there is another way to go. There's another direction that we could take. And I think there's a much greater receptivity to this than there was pre-COVID. I, I would certainly not say that that's enough to make a massive shift in society, but I think it's sowing the seeds, both of doubt and of uh, realistic hope in other directions, which would have been much more difficult pre-COVID. On the other hand, because of COVID and the enormous crisis that it's created, people are also desperate to get back into anything, right? Uh, anything that gives them a job. And, and so that's a huge challenge because then it's, it's not so easy to convince them that, okay, you know, wait for a dignified livelihood or for a sustainable livelihood. For them. And that's why we've started this national network called uh, Vikalp Sutra, which means alternative spread, trying to bring together organizations that have shown the possibilities of dignified livelihoods in cities or in villages, wherever, and those who need them to try and connect them up with each other and say, okay, maybe, you know, you can try it out. Or maybe you can get the expertise from there, or maybe somebody can travel to your place and say how, how this could be done. It could be in agriculture, in manufacturing, in crafts, in whatever uh, sector. And uh, so that network started a few months back, and we're hoping that a few years might have something. Like that. Now, you know, this moment, what you describe in India is similar to what's happening in many parts of the world, right? The details might be different, but generally there has been an increased sense of desperation brought around by the pandemic and the lockdowns that followed because especially a lot of poor people 
uh, rely on day labor. And back in South Africa and Africa, that when, when the day labor was taken away, it just left people really desperate and they were not in formal employment, so they were not necessarily getting any government support and so on. So on the one hand, this moment has been like on a, you know, like a pessimism-inducing moment, if you want, right? But what's interesting, when I talk with people like you who've got a track record of activism over a long period of time, people sort of start by saying, uh, you know, it's a really tough period and repression is increasing, fascism on the right, nationalism, all of that. And then they say, but however, in my multiple decades of activism, I don't remember a moment where I have so much of optimism that the possibility of big structural and systemic change is actually most possible in this moment that I can remember at any moment in my sort of uh, activist life. Does that resonate with you? That certainly is my view right now, but does that resonate with you at all? I think it absolutely does. I mean, I think the, the moment is opportune. And it's not just because of COVID. I think it's the combination of uh, of COVID, of the news of kinds of devastation taking place because of climate, uh, uh, you know, because of climate crisis, wildfires, flood cyclones, etc., etc., etc. And more and more, it's getting difficult for people to deny that it is something to do with uh, the way human beings have treated the earth. So uh, uh, whether it's that, whether it's the increasing knowledge about how uh, Toxics are eating up in our bodies. Even this shocking news that men in uh, not just Europe and North America, but even in, in India, uh, the sperm counts are becoming half of what they were earlier because of uh, plastics in our in our system. So <laughs> I think this kind of thing is has created that opportune moment. Absolutely. How do we use this opportune moment? What is the sort of messaging that could make people who have sat up Say, okay, instead of trying to head back in that direction, here is another direction in, into which I can step or we can step. That, I think, is what our big challenge is. And unfortunately, much of the mass media, which could have helped with this, is not. And so then it's the alternative media, um, maybe some parts of the mainstream media, but mostly the alternative media to kind of try and put this out there. Uh, and maybe in some countries, some governments are also kind of thinking along those lines. But mostly, um, it's still in the alternative sector. But uh, yes, the I think the aha moment is here. How do we use it? Well, the Financial Times, which is you know a bastion of the capitalist press, now uh, speaks frequently of a post-capitalist future, whatever that might mean. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, just to round up this point. And if you think of what happened after the global financial crisis, 2008-2009, power's response, those with power responded with system recovery, system maintenance, and system protection. But what was needed then and what's needed even more urgently now is system innovation, system redesign, and system transformation. And I agree with you, it, it's not a given that we're going to get all of those things. But I do think even what you're doing with global tapestry of alternatives with the wonderful people that you've you know, got into the conversation around the world is, I think, the kind of initiative that has to be or could potentially be part of delivering the solution that we need. Ashish, I want to just close on one set of questions around the, you know, the moment that we find ourselves in, right? What is so clear that the social contract 
between governments and people or citizens and the and, and the state, probably I think we can assume not that it's simply just broken now. It's been broken for a long time for indigenous people, for young people, for women, for various minorities and so on. If we are to move forward, we are going to have to redefine the social contract between what citizens can expect from their governments. So I want to, to end by posing a question to you, is that if you woke up in the morning, tomorrow in bed, and suddenly there was a spiritual presence in your room saying to you, Ashish, I give you the right to write one clause for a social contract that every country will adopt as a pathway to greater justice, sustainability, and equity, what would that clause be? Or what would the focus area be? So here's a thought. Um, that the social contract, I mean, the, the clause could be that any decision taken by any government needs to have two things in mind. What are the impacts of this on the next generations, future generations of human beings? And what are the impacts on other species? So does this decision or this step meet the conditions for intergenerational and interspecies justice or not. And if you're, a, if you're the spirit that's woken me up in the morning to ask me this question and you're generous enough and I say, can you give me another one? Then I would say uh, the, the right to participate in all decisions that is going to affect my life. I don't think there's a single country in the world that actually has this. The right to all decisions affecting my life. I should be able to participate in that. Ashish Kutari, on that challenging note, thank you so much for sharing your experience, your wisdom, your knowledge with us, and wishing you well. The world needs you to stay safe, well, and active so that you can help join with people elsewhere who are struggling the same thing and do what you're doing. Thank you so much for making time to speak to power people and planet. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of Power, People and Planet. The show is produced in association with the Green Economy Coalition, one of the world's biggest global alliances fighting for green and fair economies. We would love your help to spread the message of this podcast and the conversations within, so please do follow us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.